So today, we're going over three books, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And that might sound ridiculous to go through so much in such a short period of time, but when you think about it, we did Isaiah in one hour, Jeremiah in one hour. So here we spend so long in the writings of Paul. Well, what if we lumped them all into one big book? Well, anyway, we'll try to go through the main points here, and I'm trying to get through as much as as I can with you before the end of the year. And I think we only have three Thursdays after this one. But anyway, these books are sometimes called the prison apostles, and the message overlaps so much in these three books that I think we can we can kind of go back and forth between the three of them to make the point. And just in each of them, he says he's in prison. So in Ephesians, I urge you then, I who am a prisoner, because I serve the Lord, live a life that measures up to the standard God set when he called you. And again, for the sake of the gospel, I am an ambassador, though I am in prison. Both of those in Ephesians. And then in Philippians. As a result, the whole palace guard and all the others here know that I am in prison because I am a servant of Christ. And in Colossians. At the same time, pray also for us so that God will give us a good opportunity to preach his message about the secret of Christ. For that is why I am now in prison. And what's amazing is these books are just rich with love, freedom, and uh, very, very wonderful things that were written from prison. Paul didn't seem to be uh, uh, bitter. Uh, these are just uh, some of the best writings of Paul in here. And it's interesting, as we look back over some of the previous books, we went through Hebrews uh, one Saturday, and Paul had to say, there, just when it's really getting good, and he's talking about Christ and his high priestly ministry, and he has to break in and say, there's much we have to say about this matter, but it's hard to explain it to you because you're so slow to understand. And then he has to kind of regress and go back and uh, explain some things. And in 1 Corinthians, remember uh, the book where people were uh, just behaving very badly and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and doing all kinds of horrible things that he had to correct all the way through there. Well, not surprising, he had to tell them, as a matter of fact, my friends, I could not talk to you as I talk to people who have the Spirit. I had to talk to you as though you belong to this world, as children in the Christian faith. I had to feed you milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. And so if we wonder sometimes why does Paul write the way that he does, well, Many times it is because he's trying to reach people who are on milk and not ready for uh, spiritual food. I had a, a, something that happened just uh, within the last week with a, a patient that helped me understand a little bit, I think, Paul's advice here on uh, speaking in tongues. Um, I had someone, a patient, who was at a, some sort of a religious meeting and the she described it. The music was pounding, and she was standing up, jumping up and down with uh, some people that she was there with. And she described the experience, which was that she got very dizzy and lightheaded, and then she had tingling in her hands and in her feet and around her mouth. And then as she described it, the spirit came over her, she collapsed to the floor, and she shook for 30 seconds or so. It was an incredibly powerful uh, experience, and she was very moved that God had, had really come over her uh, in that. Now, uh, what would be the right response to that? I mean, it, you would not ever want to uh, destroy someone's faith by suggesting that that was not... Uh, well, now let me tell you about a few things about the Holy Spirit. You know, that would, that would really uh, not be the right thing to do. All right, so Paul's advice here on something like speaking in tongues, and remember, speaking in tongues 
as it occurred at Pentecost was for clarification, understanding. Everyone understood what people were saying. So Paul, here is these uh, uh, idolatrous religions were trying to come into Christianity, didn't come down with a hammer and destroy their faith. He said um, things like, well, I would rather speak five words that could be understood than 10,000 words that could not be understood. And well, if you're going to speak in tongues in that way, then do it in order, one at a time. And by the way, if someone can't explain and interpret what was being said, then don't do it at all. And, and so many things like that, that really if there was a speaking in tongues that was out of harmony with the way of God's Spirit and what happened at Pentecost, it really would stop. So he did it in such a, a gentle way, as I understand it, as to not uh, destroy their faith. Well, anyway, getting back into these books here, let's read a passage here from Ephesians 4. and We'll try to put all this together. And so we shall all come together to that oneness in our faith and in our knowledge of the Son of God. We shall become mature people, reaching to the very height of Christ's full stature. Then we shall no longer be children, carried by the waves and blown about by every shifting wind of the teaching of deceitful people who lead others into error by the tricks they invent. Instead, by speaking the truth in a spirit of love, we must grow up in every way to Christ, who is the head. Under his control, all the different parts of the body fit together, and the whole body is held together by every joint with, uh, with which it is provided. So when each separate part works as it should, the whole body grows and builds itself up through love. And these books, as I understand them, are describing a maturity that happens and what should happen in God's friends as they come together. And uh, he illustrates this in so many ways. And uh, if we could just choose one word here, I started circling, circling when I went through the book of Ephesians every time the word union or unity was brought up, and I, I think I stopped after about 15. Uh, it just is so much. The Gentiles and the Jews coming together, God coming together with his people in union. It's all about union and bringing things together. And just as a couple examples, in Ephesians 1, God did what he had proposed and made known to us the secret plan he had already decided to complete by means of Christ. This plan, which God will complete when the time is right, is to bring all creation together, everything in heaven and on earth, with Christ as head. All things are done according to God's plan and decision, and God chose us to be his own people in union with Christ because of his own purpose, based on what he had decided from the very beginning. Everything together, on earth and in heaven. And again in Colossians, through the Son then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross and so brought back to himself all things, both on earth and in heaven. And we could have spent the whole rest of the hour just using, using these three books to build a case for the great controversy in heaven, the war over the character of God, and that God coming in human form did it not only for you and I, but for the angels to bring us all together. Uh, we've been over that so many times, but this is just one example in these books um, of how God really is trying to restore harmony, not just on this sinful world, but where the war began, up in heaven. And he accomplished that by his life on earth. Okay, so it's for the purpose of union. Now, there are three verses here that I think are, are fascinating with reference to where you and I are right now in our relationship with God. In our union with Christ Jesus... He raised us up with him to rule with him in the heavenly world. 
He did this to demonstrate for all time to come the extraordinary greatness of his grace in the love he showed us in Christ Jesus. Now, what does this mean? In our union with Christ Jesus, he raised us up with him to rule with him in the heavenly world. Is this speaking in the future tense? Well, at some point in time, we will be raised up to rule with him in the heavenly world. Uh, It sounds like this is something that has already happened and is more support for that in Philippians. We, however, are citizens of heaven. I mean, you feel like now a citizen of heaven. And we eagerly wait for our Savior. Look, we wait for, we are now citizens. We wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come from heaven. I think it's, uh, it adds a meaning and a depth of life to think that we are now citizens. We are now raised up to rule with them. We are part of God's plan to try to bring this whole uh, controversy to a close. And again, back in Ephesians. So then you Gentiles are not foreigners or strangers any longer. You are now citizens together with God's people and members of the family of God. And now, here's his first illustration. He'll make several of them. But you two are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. The cornerstone being Christ Jesus himself. He is the one who holds the whole building together and makes it grow into a sacred temple dedicated to the Lord. You know, we sometimes talk about the sanctuary and that whole service as, okay, that's Old Testament. Uh, That's the end of that. There's not much to be learned anymore from the whole sanctuary language, except that it is used all throughout the New Testament and in Revelation again and again and again. So there is rich understanding here. And Paul is illustrating that God's family, his friends on earth, we are built together, all of us, as a spiritual temple with Christ as the cornerstone. And uh, let's just build a little more support for that in 1 Peter. Come to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. Who's the temple? We are the temple. He was rejected by the people, but he is precious to God who chose him. And now God is building you as living stones into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are God's holy priests. We're stones in the temple. We're priests in the temple. Uh, who offer spiritual sacrifice that please him because of Jesus Christ. Okay, why is it important that we come to see that we're part of a building, a temple, that we're priests? Uh, So much more to add on to it. In Revelation, I will make those who are victorious pillars in the temple of my God. They will never leave it. So we're pillars in the temple as well. It gives so many other examples. In Revelation 1, Jesus is walking in the holy place among the lampstands, and the lampstands are the church. So we are continually brought back into the symbolism of the sanctuary. What's the meaning? Well, we didn't read this in 1 Corinthians, but you are also God's building, his temple. And using the gift that God gave me, I did the work of an expert builder and laid the foundation. Who's the foundation? Christ. And someone else is building on it. But each of you must be careful how you build. For God has already placed Jesus Christ as the one and only foundation, and no other foundation can be laid. Surely you know that you are God's temple. I mean, how many times in the Bible now does it clearly say we are the temple and that God's spirit lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys God's temple for God's temple is holy and you yourselves are his temple. A few chapters later in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that your body is a temple that belongs to the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit whom you receive from God lives in you. And... As I understood it growing up, when I thought of us as the temple, it was about diet and exercise and, and those kinds of things. 
But where would the Holy Spirit live in our bodies? Where would he reside? Big toe, um, a, uh, a muscle that pumps blood. Okay, no, right upstairs, in the mind, where we make decisions, and where we freely choose for God or against God. This is ultimately the temple. And so notice it's a, we individually are a temple, but collectively, together, as stones built together, we are the temple. And again in 2 Corinthians, for we are the temple of the living God. And God himself has said, I will make my home with my people and live among them. That's what he's trying to do in this whole process of, of restoring or cleansing the temple. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so, uh, just to, I think this is so significant, just to go back briefly to Daniel and just to understand why Paul is going back to this temple language so often. Um, you remember the familiar description here in Daniel 8 about the little horn that grew strong enough to attack the army of heaven. Okay, now what's the meaning there? The stars themselves and threw some of them to ground and trampled on them. I mean, is Satan strong enough to throw the army of heaven down to the ground? What's the meaning? It even defied the prince of the heavenly army. Wouldn't that be Jesus? Stopped the daily sacrifices offered to him and ruined, defiled the temple. Okay, who's the temple? We're the, the temple. Notice for clarification, people sin there instead of offering the proper daily sacrifices and true religion was thrown to the ground. Okay, if we are the temple and error, deception, uh, heresy, falsehoods about who God is, if that becomes the belief of God's people, then that would be the defiling of the temple. And that's why as we read on, and he said to him, for 2,300 evenings and mornings and so the sanctuary be cleansed and restored. So if the temple is defiled, it has to be cleansed. Okay, so, but to say that we have only one verse to bring about a need for the cleansing of the temple. No, it's all the way through the Bible. So what does it mean to cleanse the temple? Well, let's go back to the original description of the cleansing of the temple. Back in Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. And notice, what was the purpose of the cleansing of the temple on that day? On that day, the ritual is to be performed to purify them from all their sins so that they'll be ritually clean. And as we read on, the cleansing of the temple was for the people of the community. It was to purify the people and the priests. Okay, so the symbolism all the way back has always been about the purification. And what would that be? That would be coming to see God as he is and to become Christ-like as a community. That is the cleansing of the temple, all the way back to Leviticus. And so, in Malachi, we read about the priests. What's the duty of the priests? Remember, we're priests in that temple. And our job as priests in that temple is to treat, teach a true knowledge of God, which, of course, they weren't doing at that time. And it's fascinating as we read on. The priests were not teaching a true knowledge of God. What was the result? They have defiled the temple. So, again, uh, are we understanding and coming together on the truth about God? If we are, then that temple is being cleansed. If, and for what happened for a very, very long period of time, uh, after Pentecost and Acts, if falsehood was believed about who God is, ultimately, then the temple is defiled. And so as just support for that, Jesus would say, no one will say, look, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Now, we all look forward to a great 
coming in the clouds and uh, going back to heaven and all of that. But if the kingdom does not come within us and among us, then that coming in the clouds uh, will, will not be uh, what we hope that it will be. Right? So it all starts with what goes on up here and within and among us. And you remember the man that came to Jesus and gave a wise answer. Jesus noticed how wise his answer was, and so he told him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, and I don't think this minute you're about to die, and then you'll go up to heaven. Um, his, what Jesus is saying is, your understanding, you are coming into the true understanding, and you are not far from the kingdom of God, which I want to establish within you and among my people. That's the ultimate kingdom that God wants to restore. And so just tying all this together, and we see what a battle this is back and forth, uh, we read in 2 Thessalonians about someone else who wants to reside in the temple. Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the final rebellion takes place and the wicked one appears, who is destined to hell. He will oppose every so-called God or object of worship and will put himself above them all. He will even go in and sit down in God's temple and claim to be God. Now, we can't imagine Satan coming in to God's very presence in heaven and booting him off his throne and sitting down. But as we use the whole Bible and these many, many references to we are the temple, then we can understand this is a battle uh, really over the mind. And Satan wants to be worshipped as God. He wants to sit down as God and be worshipped in the temple. That's the defiling of the temple. And this is the back and forth war uh, that's described all the way through the Bible. Anyway, so that's the significance I see in all this uh, reference to the sanctuary, which is a beautiful model for us understanding how it works and how God is to get rid of the sin, distrust, rebellion problem. Okay, well, now the rest of these books then describe, I think, what Paul feels, you know what, this is how the cleansed temple would look. This is what the community of God's people would look like if we all come together we see God for who he is, and uh, if because of that we become Christ-like. And if we read about Ephesus, it's interesting that these really would seem to be a mature people. Back in Acts, Paul sent messengers to the city of Ephesus and called the spiritual leaders of the church to meet with him. And he describes what message did he give those people. But I don't place any value on my own life. I want to finish the race I'm running. I want to carry out the mission I received from the Lord Jesus the mission of testifying to the good news of God's kindness. That was his mission. Mission That was his message. That God is supremely gracious and kind. And he would go on. This is what he told them. I'm now entrusting you to God and to his message that tells how kind he is. In essence, you know what? He's just like Jesus in character. And that is the message that can help you grow and can give you the inheritance that is shared by all of God's holy people. So in Acts, you describe, this is what I told those people in Ephesus. And so I'll just use a little bit from each of these books, which uh, to me describes this is the essence of Paul's message. In Ephesians 1, I have not stopped giving thanks to God for you. I remember you in my prayers and ask the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, to give you this spirit. Now, what is Paul praying for when he prays for these people? Who will make you wise and reveal God to you so that you will know him. And we've talked so many times. The word is to know. Eternal life is to know God. God comes back and to people who don't go to heaven, he says, I don't know you. Okay? Symbolically, the description here is, we're not friends. You don't know who I am. We don't have a relationship. 
This is the message of Paul. And if there's a, I mean, if we're ever going to point to what did Paul believe with a passion, maybe just read this in Philippians. This is what it was all about for Paul. Not only those things, I reckon everything as complete loss for the sake of what is so much more valuable. Hey, what is everything else is nothing compared to what? The knowledge of Christ. Jesus, my Lord. Hey, not a knowledge of when he was born, historical facts and all of that, but a knowledge of who he is, a knowledge of his character. And for his sake, I have thrown everything away. I consider it all as mere garbage so that I may gain Christ and be completely united with him. And this is why, I mean, if you just ask people, what was the message of Paul? And, uh, you know, I often hear a description of, well, legal payment for sin and we're covered by the blood and, and that kind of a thing. And all that needs to be understood and it's all important. But, I mean, how much everything is lost, everything is garbage to Paul, except a knowledge of God. I mean, I think Paul would have to say this is the number one thing for Paul. All I want is to know Christ and to experience the power of his resurrection. Now, this is interesting because in another place, he would say the power of the resurrection of Christ is the power that works in us to restore and to heal us. But notice how he goes on. To share in his sufferings and become like him in his death in the hope that I myself will be raised from death to life. I do not claim that I have already succeeded or have already become perfect. Notice, what is he talking about? What do we do in baptism? It's symbolic of we're dead to the old way of living. We're resurrected into new life in Christ. He's talking here about Christ working within because he wants to become Christ-like. And there's nothing wrong with uh, wanting to become uh, Christ-like. He's talking about this whole process of change. Okay, so it's Ephesians, Colossians, or Philippians, now in Colossians. Here's his take-home message. For this reason, we've always prayed for you ever since we heard about you. We ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, with all the wisdom and understanding that his spirit gives. Then you will be able to live as the Lord wants and will always do what pleases him. Your lives will produce all kinds of good deeds and you will grow in your knowledge of God. Okay, again, we grow in our knowledge of God and always in parallel, as we grow in our knowledge of God, as our the lens, our focus of God becomes clearer and clearer and clearer, the two things always go in parallel, which is all kinds of good deeds, Christ-like character, uh, it's unavoidable as we come to see God and have a relationship with Him that we become like the God we love, worship, and admire. And so, uh, finally, this verse here in Ephesians 3. I ask God from the wealth of His glory to give you power through His Spirit to be strong in your inner selves. And I pray that Christ will make His home in your hearts through faith. I pray that you may have your roots and foundation in love so that you, together with all God's people, may have the power to understand how broad and long, how high and deep is Christ's love. That is coming to know God. Yes, maybe you come to know his love, although it can never be fully known. What's the result? And so be completely filled with the very nature of God. And that would be the very character of God. To him, by means of his power working in us, is able to do so much more than we can ever ask for or ever think of, to God be the glory. But notice here, what is the power? By the means of his power working in us, you know, again, we do not work on healing ourselves. We just work on being in a trusting relationship with God. And I think uh, as, just as a parallel 
try to put this in a medical example. Um, you know, you have a patient who has maybe through his own neglect uh, abused alcohol and is on a steady diet of alcohol, cheeseburgers and french fries or whatever, and comes in to see you as a physician with all kinds of medical problems as a result of that kind of uh, behavior and um, comes into the physician. And what would he say? I mean, a physician says, I can do a lot to help you and let's, let's talk this out. And would the patient just say, no, I, I just want to be forgiven. I don't want to get better. I just want to be forgiven. And that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Don't we want to get better? And of course, the physician, yeah, I forgive you, of course, for all those things. That's, that's no problem. Um, and so then the physician describes, you know what, if you just trust me, do you trust me? Do you trust that I can actually help you with this? And if you keep your appointments, and would the patient say, no, hold on, are you asking me to do something? Are you asking me to trust you? I mean, what kind of a legalistic kind of a doctor are you? That I have to actually come in and keep appointments? I want a shot and I'm out of here or something like that. No, I mean, this is a very uh, a natural kind of a thing. We spend time with God, we know Him, we trust Him, and there is naturally healing that occurs. And God will save, again, yeah, use a medical illustration, His patients at all stages. I mean, there's people like the thief on the cross who all he did was trust in Jesus. He didn't do a single good thing, except at the last minute, he was overwhelmed by this person dying next to him. He trusted Jesus, and that's it. Great. He's in heaven. That's all God asks is trust. So there are people like that. There are people like Samson, um, who died, you know, remember saying, uh, let me knock this temple down so I can get even with those people for, not, for taking my eyes out. Okay, but he's in Hebrews as someone who had some trust in God, so he'll be there. Okay, but then there are people like Abraham and Job and others who were really God's friends and, and what a, what a Christ-like character they have. Okay? So it's all a, quite a natural process as it works out. And going on in Ephesians, I urge you then, I who am a prisoner because I serve the Lord, live a life that measures up to the standard that God set when he called you. Be always humble, gentle, and patient. Show your love by being tolerant with one another. So again, this is describing uh, someone with a Christ-like character. Humility, gentleness, patience. So get rid of your old self, which made you live as you used to. The old self that was being destroyed by its deceitful desires. Your hearts and mind must be made completely new, and you must put on the new self, which is created in God's likeness and reveals itself in the true life that is upright and holy. But you know, as we read through this, and as we look at our own lives, and we see... Uh, boy, you know what? I'm really not that gentle, kind, and patient, and I really do hate my enemy. I really don't love my enemy. This is why we need the whole Bible to encourage us at times like that. And uh, if you want encouragement, read the uh, Psalms 139, where David would start out saying, you know, God, you know everything about me. You know me inside and out. I couldn't go anywhere to get away from you, God, because you know my every thought, and he talks on and on. You wonder why he's, why he's doing all of this. And then all of a sudden... He says, you know what, I hate my enemies, and I would like to kill, I hate them with a total hatred, he would go on. And then he finishes up the psalm by saying, but if there is any wicked way in me, please you know, make it known to me, reveal that I have, may have a new heart and a right spirit. And so, um, as we see ourselves not matching up with the ideal, the Bible encourages us to come to God and to say, you know what, I actually, I don't feel patient and kind, I actually hate my enemy, and the Psalms are a great record of people coming honestly to God as they are 
And that is actually how we heal. So it would be like coming to a psychiatrist, having very, very deep issues with your parents or your spouse, and just not opening up at all, and not discussing or bringing up all of the issues that are going on. And can any healing happen when you come to a psychiatrist and you don't uh, share what's on your mind? Okay, so again, the Psalms, I think, help us see that, you know what, we can tell God exactly how we feel. He's not offended, and uh, he will lead us into becoming Christ-like as we spend time with him. Okay, now skipping to Colossians. You are the people of God. He loved you and chose you for his own. So then you must close yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be tolerant with one another and forgive one another. Whenever any of you has a complaint against someone else, you must forgive one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you. And to all these qualities add love, which binds all things together in perfect unity. The peace that Christ gives is to guide you in the decisions you make. For it is to this peace that God has called you together in the one body. Your life in Christ makes you strong, and his love comforts you. You have fellowship with the Spirit, and you have kindness and compassion for one another. I urge you then to make me completely happy by having the same thoughts, sharing the same love, and being one in soul and mind. Don't do anything from selfish ambition or from a cheap desire to boast, but be humble toward one another, always considering others better than yourselves. Didn't we just read this at least twice in Romans and, and somewhere else? Considering others better than yourselves. I mean, that's uh, almost hard to identify with being in that way, but imagine living in a world where other people were more interested in your own welfare than you are. I mean, that would be hard to imagine, but that's the ideal. And look out for one another's interests, not just for your own. Get rid of all the bitterness, passion, and anger. No more shouting or insults. No more hateful feelings of any sort. Instead, be kind and tenderhearted to one another. And forgive one another, as God has forgiven you through Christ. Since you are God's dear children, you must try to be like him. There's nothing wrong with trying to be like God as long as we're not trying to work our way into the kingdom by doing that. Your life, your life must be controlled by love. And remember, love is not coercive. So to be controlled by love is to be completely free. Just as Christ loved us and gave his life for us as a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice that pleases God, and it's just a, I think it's helpful here. Anytime you read something in Paul that, um, well, I'm not sure what that means. What does that mean? Christ gave himself as a sweet-smelling offering and sacrifice that pleases God. And we can um, maybe imagine kind of a, is this describing some sort of an appeasement uh, thing going on here? Well, try to find it within the, the books of Paul where he talks about something similar. And uh, so th on this incense, going back to 2 Corinthians, Paul describes us as like that incense. For God uses us to make the knowledge about Christ spread everywhere like a sweet fragrance. For we are like a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God, which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it is a deadly stench that kills, but for those who are being saved, it is a fragrance that brings life. So Christ came as the ultimate fragrance, incense, to go throughout the world to reveal the knowledge of God, and we are to be reflectors of that as well. So that is the sweet-smelling incense, and of course, God was the Father was very pleased that Christ came to bring that to the world. 
And again in Ephesians, you yourselves used to be in the darkness, but since you have become the Lord's people, you are in the light. So you must live like people who belong to the light. For it is the light that brings a rich harvest of every kind of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then finally, as the scripture says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and the two will become one. And I like this. There is a deep secret truth revealed in this scripture, which I understand is applying to Christ and the church. So what he's saying here is a man and a woman come together in love, they get married, they become one. And he is saying there's a deep secret truth here, which is this is a parallel of Christ coming together with his people. It is just like a marriage and all the wonderful love and and so on that goes along with that. And um, it seems like God has given us so many things just in our daily life to help us understand. And we went through these when we went through the book of Solomon last year. Um, But I love all of these references, you know, to try to help us to explain his love for us. There's one, a father, or a, a husband and a wife. But the Song of Songs, I think, tells us that, boy, you know what, the relationship with God, that in love feeling, all of that with, between a man and a woman, uh, that is the parallel between us and Christ. It's no less intense and wonderful, really. Well, what about this, the bridegroom on the wedding day? That's the description of the second coming. Dressed like a bride, ready for her husband on the honeymoon. It's, it is actually that kind of an experience. And, of course, a loving husband, the book of Hosea, or remember, even if we have been a prostitute wife, what did Hosea do? He went out with money. Um, you talk about risking your reputation to try to buy back the prostitute wife, even if we'd become that way. Well, so God uses the husband-wife analogy, but you know, maybe if your husband uh, beats you and gets drunk every night, then that's not helpful to have a husband-wife analogy. That doesn't mean anything. So he doesn't leave it at that. Okay, well, how about this? I'm a good shepherd. Of course, we have the 23rd Psalms. Maybe we can identify with God as a shepherd and we're his sheep. And Jesus would say, you know what, if there's only one of you out of a hundred that is left, I'll leave everything. I'm the good shepherd. I'm going to go out and find the one. And my sheep know my voice and I know them. And I'm even as a good shepherd willing to lay down my life for my sheep. But we don't, you know any shepherds? I mean, maybe we can't really identify with a shepherd. So, of course, he doesn't stop there. Well, how about maybe a vineyard owner? Maybe this will be a good analogy that can explain how things work. And in Isaiah, very moving description. I sing a ballad to the one I love, a love ballad about his vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard, a fine, well-placed vineyard. He hoed the soil, pulled the weeds, planted the very best vines. He built a lookout, built a wine press, a vineyard to be proud of, did everything for the vineyard. All right? Is that an illustration that moves us and that brings us close to God? Um, well, maybe, how about this, a friend. You have a good friend. Maybe then we can identify with that. Jesus would say, I don't want to call you servants. Um, I want to be your friend. So maybe we have a friend in life and we can identify, wow, God wants to be my friend. That means something. Maybe that doesn't mean something to people. So how more tender could it get than this? Could a mother forget a child who nurses at her breast? Could she fail to love an infant who came from her own body? Even if a mother could forget, I will never forget you. Could there be any more tender description than a nursing baby? Well, maybe that doesn't move us. Mother can. I mean, how how much... uh, Deeper could it get than that? You've seen a mother hen. How many times I wanted to put my arms around all your people, just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not let me. Maybe that doesn't work, so we get the story of the prodigal son. And remember, the son is off in the pig pen. He just decides, okay, I'm going to go home. And the description of the father, 
He was still a long way from home when his father saw him. His heart was filled with pity and he ran, threw his arms around his son and kissed him. So I mean, we could probably add 10 more you know, quickly, other illustrations. But how many times and in different ways does God have to tell us, you know what, I really love you and I just want to be in a very intimate relationship with you. It's all the way through the Bible. So as a, uh, maybe a concluding uh, to these books here in Colossians 1, God's plan is to make known his secret to his people, this rich and glorious secret which he has for all peoples, and the secret is that Christ is in you, which means that you will share in the glory of God. We'll become bright. No, which means that we will be reflectors of the character of God. So we preach Christ to everyone, with all possible wisdom, we warn and teach them in order to bring each one into God's presence as a mature individual in union with Christ. And I think, uh, you know, the reason that God waits, uh, what's taking so long? Why don't things wrap up and we have the second coming? Is I think he waits for his people really to grow up and to become settled into the truth, to become mature individuals, because the description, as I read them in the book of Revelation, Man, it's a horrible, uh, deceptive time with all kinds of things happening. And unless God has his people really settled into the truth, what is the seal of God? It's to be so settled into the truth that you can't be moved. Unless he really has a mature people settled into the truth, the temple cleansed and uh, restored, all united on the cornerstone, then his people will not survive what is to come uh, in, in the end time. So I like this description here of the people who are marked with God's seal, 144,000, that's a symbolic number, but these people uh, cannot be moved. And I think the thing they cannot be moved about is what kind of a person God is. They're completely settled into that. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, we pray that we may all join together as um, pillars, as living stones in your temple, that you would dwell in us, within each one of us individually, and collectively, and uh, that we would come together in love and like a sweet fragrance go throughout the world to represent you as you really are in character, as a God of great love, kindness, gentleness, and even humility. Amen.